Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Carissa Caban Aliman is a psychiatrist with the Florida International University Medical School. She has studied and worked with communities that do not always get enough attention insofar as how they are able to prepare for the many aspects of climate changes, and indeed also to how they are reacting to such events as the hurricanes in Puerto Rico. Dr. Caban Aliman, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. How did you first become interested in dealing with communities insofar as climate change is concerned? Sometimes these have been referred to as populations that have been systematically oppressed. Could you give us some background and then why this particular terminology is used? Yes, of course. Well, in terms of the medical community, we tend to use the term underserved very often for populations that have limitations in terms of access to healthcare and, and the quality of healthcare they can receive. For example, high poverty rates, vulnerable populations like the elderly or the homeless, areas where there's few primary care providers or high infant mortality rates. I like to use the term systematically oppressed more because it is more appropriate for the, the populations that I've worked with and that I'm very interested in helping in the realm of climate change. I think a lot about the disproportionate impact that climate change has on populations that usually have a lower carbon footprint and that are actually contributing to air pollution and other related to climate change in very low levels compared to more privileged wealthy populations that are actually having a huge carbon footprint and having a bigger role on the impact of climate change. Helping these populations stand up for themselves, have a voice that actually gets to policymakers and politicians and people that can actually do something on a bigger scale about climate change is very important, especially when it comes to thinking about the impacts on their mental health. And that's what I've seen with things like the aftermath of Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. You bring up a very interesting point in that there are very real differences in the sizes of the carbon footprint, but it's almost as if a lot of these communities are downwind from us larger carbon footprint making communities. They're suffering. So do they see climate change differently than those of us here in countries like the United States? Is that part of the, the challenge for you? I think that the, the way that people see climate change is not necessarily directly related to how, how poor they are or in what area they live in, but we usually see a trend in which areas that have been being impacted by more obvious consequences of climate change, like hurricanes getting more intense and more frequent, or the wildfires in California, or flooding or drought, those communities obviously have already lived the impact of climate change. And when you add a little bit of education into the mix, no matter if they're poor, if they're underserved or they're actually wealthier, what I've observed in my personal experience doing voluntary work with this is that you actually have a wide variety. I, I know about very special communities in Puerto Rico that are very active, that are working very aggressively against climate change and that are very poor. They're actually getting educated. They're actually reaching out to partners that are helpful with their needs, maybe are more educated than some wealthy communities here in the United States. So I would say it's relative and it depends on the context of each individual person, right? How do we introduce the concepts of climate change and what can be done to prevent it to the groups that you've worked with? Like even in Puerto Rico, what do we do? What do we teach them? How do we begin? There's a lot of potential answers to that question. The training that I've received relies in not speaking 
speaking to people about the faraway polar bear that's not having a habitat anymore because the ice is melting and not talking about endangered species, but just trying to relate what's going on with their immediate community situations, especially when it comes to healthcare impact. If you you can really show people how climate change is impacting the future and the health of their family members and their communities. You can really make a difference and it tends to be a little bit easier for them to listen. But I would say in general, we have a lot of work to do in learning better skills of how to listen, how to actually let ourselves like stay silent and actually listen to the needs of the person, the patient or the community that we're working with to identify what might click for them to want to think about this and to want to act upon climate change. That's actually what I've been working a lot in the last couple of months after the the year and a half, I would say, that I was doing disaster response with Hurricane Maria and also helping out a little bit here with some local situations. This actually has made me, pushed me and motivated me to work on newer skills and, and renewed capacities to be a better listener. Give me more. This is fascinating. You actually went to Puerto Rico, I'm assuming, after the hurricanes and, and, and dealt with the people. What did you see? What were the people needing from us? Okay, that's a long answer. So That's okay. I work with Crear Con Salud. It's a nonprofit organization that I'm a founding board member of. We are a very small, not very well-funded, but an organization of psychiatrists that had been trying to work on education projects about mental health, trying to destigmatize mental health services in the island. And after the hurricane, we were contacted by several nonprofit organizations and community leaders that I was getting in contact with by the work of many responders here in Miami and South Florida that gathered donations to send over there. And I also had a network of Puerto Rican doctors that was communicating with doctors over there to send donations door to door. We started making all of these connections and then we started to see that the community leaders were asking for us to just be there to support them emotionally. A lot of community leaders weren't really trained to do psychological first aid or emotional response work, but because of the lack of governmental response and on remote areas and areas that are quote-unquote underserved or very oppressed or poor, they were just doing the work that usually you would expect governmental organizations to do. And they were very, very burned out. They were overwhelmed. They had situations that were very complicated related to severe and persistent mental illness, not having access to medications, the patients not having cell phone signal to call their doctors or get the refills, situations like that. And obviously, as you probably have heard, the situation with the electrical grid basically going offline for months and months really complicated the situation. So we established connections with several leaders and we started to do emotional support workshops for community leaders mainly, sometimes some communities if the leaders were really asking for that in different areas, but it was basically municipalities in the middle of the main island of Puerto Rico that were very remote. We sometimes needed to get there with support from the police and from other nonprofits to get there in big bands, things like that. And, and what we saw is that people were really in despair. They were going through a lot of stress and anxiety. As a recent study showed, the, the rates of PTSD in children and adolescents have increased in public schools significantly. We were also seeing access to care that were already there, but just got compounded by the disaster. In the first stage, we supported survival needs that people had. For example, we got water filters for them to be able to use water from the river and from polluted sources and started developing these connections with a couple of organizations that we had worked with for some reason 
one or the other, some of them we remained close and we started developing this track of different topics, sort of a curriculum to help them with certain main aspects like transformational resilience, like how to deal with burnout, some concepts of psychological first aid, a couple of things that we really learned along the way, more from the same community leaders that from research and, <laughs> and academic papers, to tell you the truth. What we saw that was working right in some communities that really became very empowered and very resourceful by themselves, that's what we tried to inspire other communities to do. I want to get back to you and have you talk more about transformational resilience, but before we do that, it sounds like you developed a curriculum on how to go into these communities, set them up. It was a good model that evolved out of necessity. Part of my curiosity is that religion in a lot of countries is very powerful, very powerful. Did you see the role of the churches? Did they help? Were they hindered? Did they feel like their hands were tied? What did you see in terms of the interaction with the religious communities? In the experience of Crear Con Salud and several opportunities that I had personally to interact with other leaders, they were extremely active. Most of Puerto Ricans are Catholic, but there are other religions as well. I remember having interactions even in forums and, and presentations and gatherings that were put together by the academic community later on. There were a lot of people from church actively asking for help, making connections, requesting more support, and actually being at the table, giving their reports about their experiences that they had and the work that they did a little bit over a year after the hurricane, but they were still feeling pretty overwhelmed by the emotional chronic consequences of the hurricane and everything that, that they were living. And I think that they were also very concerned about how to become more resilient emotionally to the potential threat of another hurricane coming. We also interacted with other leaders along the way that extremely helpful. They really helped people. They were giving food, giving shelter giving water, finding resources, medications for people, and I think they're still fundamental, at least in Puerto Rico, that's what I saw. That's excellent. Now, the concept of a transformational resilience is relatively academic in some respects, but very grassroots in others. When you went in there, it was after the event, so you said that you had to work with helping prepare them for the inevitability that someday another hurricane would hit them, hence transformational resilience. What? Give us more. Give us details about what that entails, please. Okay. In theory, this is a concept that was developed to address the emotional process of dealing with climate change. It's not necessarily a term that was developed for disaster response or for mental health separately. It's just to see climate change and know how to handle it, but it's actually based on the basic topic of resilience and how to deal with it. Basically, transformational resilience means a systematic prevention process that builds, builds on existing strength of the community, of the person, or the, or the family, whoever we're or the country to minimize the mental health and social spiritual impact of climate change before they happen, right? So it's a preventive process, but unfortunately, when you don't have the, you know, most, most human beings are not really going to have enough time or enough education or enough space to really go through a very, very big process to prepare mentally for the impact of climate change, especially with underserved or, or systemically oppressed populations. What we did with this concept, it was more discussing it with the community leaders, seeing what they thought. They've used this opportunity of Hurricane Maria to really think about what needs to happen in Puerto Rico long term, to really be prepared for other impacts of climate change, for another hurricane, and to actually 
maintain the island afloat and alive in terms of all of the socioeconomic calamities that they're going through, or I would say, you know, quote-unquote, hurricanes that we've been going through for decades in terms of the crisis, the fiscal crisis and the, the colonial status that we have, which Maria really uncovered that for the United States and for the world. But that's really what made this so complicated for Puerto Rico. The limited resources that we were already dealing with, a big system of corruption that was affecting the ability of the government to be prepared much more than it would have in, in other decades where at least there was an actual plan in terms of responding to, to emergencies like this. It was a very complicated process that they were already having to face. And I think that many people were in denial. So um, this natural, quote unquote, natural disaster really like forced people to open their eyes and see what they could do for themselves not continue to wait on other people to do it for them. When you were there, was it harder for the children? Was it harder for the older folks? Were kids scared? How did you, from a psychiatric point of view, address the fear that one day they are fine and the next day everything is almost almost destroyed? You can find some facts in some research studies, but in my personal experience, I don't, I don't think I can tell you, oh, this population was more scared than the other. It really depends on the family, the person, and the community. I think the more that people are in social isolation, are uh, concerned about limited financial resources, are out of a job, are, you know, having a huge hole in the, in the roof of their home or not even able to live in their home anymore. Having disjointed families that had to, half of them had to move to the United States. Suddenly, the more that you add all of these social determinants to the situation of each individual person, it makes sense to think that they're going to be more scared and less prepared for another calamity like this. I do think that doesn't always fit the mold, right? It's like this is, these are concepts that we always think about in, in any assessment for any psychiatric evaluation. There are a lot of biopsychosocial factors that we have to consider. I've also met children and elderly people and you know, people that you would consider very limited in terms of the material resources that they have, yet they have a great spirit. They've been through a lot of tough situations in their lives. They've actually used transformational resilience without maybe even knowing, and they are actually more emotionally strong and ready for more calamities in the future than some people that might be very wealthy and very resourceful materially, but unfortunately do not have the calmness or the serenity to be able to face all of the limitations that they had to go through. So I would say it varies. Fair enough. It also raises the question that I think enough people don't realize that after a calamity, be it from climate change, as the, a lot of the theories say the hurricanes are worse because of the climate changes, but the unavailability of help. A lot of people from Puerto Rico, you said, came to the United States. What if there's no place to go? What if they don't have relatives? What if their governmental system that doesn't have the resources and they're being helped mostly by charitable organizations and the like? What you did in Puerto Rico is a very good template to learn from about how to handle these crises. And the crises are not just exclusively from climate change, but in general, teaching people to be prepared for massive changes in their home. I find it fascinating. Or out of their home. The predictions of thousands of people having to migrate away from what they call home because of impacts of climate change that might have nothing to do with hurricanes, those predictions, I highly doubt that they're not going to come true. It's just very obvious to me. For example, what you said already happened. I know about, unfortunately, a lot of people, I don't know them personally, but I know I know that a lot of people that I know, for example, in Kissimmee and Orlando, 
here in Central Florida, have worked with these families that came here initially with some FEMA support, a little bit of, of support from nonprofit organizations, but the nonprofits that are still trying to support them to this day do not have the funds to really provide housing, and they're literally homeless, sleeping on their bridges, and that is also happening with a lot of people in New York. There is a documentary that I saw a few months ago that demonstrates, I think, the story of two families that really became homeless in New York City after the FEMA support for staying in a hotel was discontinued. So this is already happening, and, it, and it's now something that a lot of people can potentially face coming from the Bahamas after Dorian, which was much worse in terms of, of the actual impact of the hurricane and how long it persisted over the islands. I think that Bahamians are going to go through some of that, too. The more that we get climate change impacts and disasters, the more that we're going to see people becoming climate refugees. And unfortunately, they're usually people that have gone through a lot of racial injustice and, and systemic oppression, like us as a colony of the United States. So we are already seeing it, and some of them are really homeless. In Puerto Rico, I think it's a little bit easier for people that have lost their homes and people that are very, very poor because there is still somewhat of a hub of a lot of support from family, neighbors, and friends. But when you come as a migrant from the Caribbean to the United States, at least in our experience, you're more socially isolated. Sometimes a lot of these people don't really have a good knowledge about the language, and they don't necessarily have the same qualifications in terms of experiences and licenses to get a job that easily here. So in some ways, everything becomes more difficult. This so represents elements that need to be discussed, explored, prepared for, paid for by governments and communities in the preparation for in the inevitability of what we see happening. Your observations and your hands-on involvement is what gives us that extra dimension. I thank you very much for discussing it. Dr. Carissa Aleman is a psychiatrist. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. There are a couple of projects, I would say like, I know about four or five, but there's one project in a little town that's very, you know, there's a lot of mountains called Utualo. It's called Casa Pueblo. I don't know if you've ever heard about like, you know, community movements in Puerto Rico, but they are awesome. They've partnered up with several organizations and, and corporations and they they are pretty much lighting up their whole town with solar panels by themselves. Oh, I've heard about and this. They, they have a lot of activists yes. on. They're, they're pretty much like the number one enemy of the government right now, probably. Um, but, you know, this is the kind of stuff that I, I really I really believe in. If I could just work to help them with emotional support, I would probably quit and, and just go there to live with them. Because, you know, they've done a lot of great work and it involves other things like helping people go back to nature, go back to connecting with the, you know, with, with agriculture and like planting and growing their own food. Food insecurity is another huge topic there, obviously, because of the Jones Act and all that. So it's just very empowering to see how they've rised up and, and, and are really surviving on their own without any support. If they can do it, I think people here can do it. I agree with you. It's just to maintain the hopes up, you know, they're, they're sort of like, my hope when I'm very frustrated about all of the stuff that we're not being able to detain with climate change. <laughs> anyway, so thank you very much. Thank you. We will continue this, but appreciate what you said and and the 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 sense of community and the sense of doing things is my wife's culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I hope we don't lose that.